Lord, I know for me and perhaps many of us here, we feel the weight of this text more so than others. For those who love your son, we read this and it grips us. It humbles us. It's a reminder about who we are. And what was required for us to be made your people. I ask you today to help us come away from here saved, humbled, and emboldened. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. More than two years ago, in early September of 2019, we began this journey through the Gospel of Matthew. And in this very important book, and in the first sermon I preached from this very important book, I announced the theme of this book, that the King has come. And I declared that the Gospel of Matthew showcases this king in all of his brilliance as he pays for and claims for himself a people from all nations and tribes and ethnicities who would go forth forever in his name as glad followers and as devoted worshipers. And this king's brilliance we have seen from one week to the next, from one chapter after another, as Jesus arrived and went about securing for himself a people. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21 the angel of the Lord said to Joseph regarding his betrothed wife, Mary, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That's why he came. And in chapter 4, verses 18 and 19, while Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. He came to save, and he's building for himself a people who will go forth with his message that men and women and boys and girls might be saved. In chapter 8, verses 10 through 12, Jesus said to the Roman centurion, a man of the nations, a Gentile, not a Jew, truly I tell you, 
With no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Many people from all over the world of all stripes and clans are going to come to him in his kingdom. In chapter 16, he related to his disciples the indestructible body of people that he was going to form through them. He said in verse 18, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He's going to build for himself a congregation of people, a holy ecclesia, a church, and not even the gates of hell will stand against his chosen people. And then in chapter 24 and verse 30, Jesus declared, I think, that he would come again and gather his people to himself forever. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. So Jesus came to secure for himself an eternal people. And now, in chapter 27, he pays for them. He lovingly pays the sin debt of his people in order to purchase eternal blessing for all of his beloved people. So the king who came now fulfills the purpose of his coming. And as we place our attention again on chapter 27, we find three scandalous events that happened to the king of glory. Number one, the king was mocked by the Romans. Number two, the king was crucified for sinners. And number three, the king was ridiculed by the Jews. Scandalous event number one, the king was mocked by the Romans. First, they publicly shamed him. Verse 27, then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. Pilate's soldiers would have been auxiliary soldiers and not normal Roman legionnaires, and they likely were recruited from the Gentile inhabitants of the surrounding lands. That's how the Romans usually did it. Likely these men were Phoenicians, Syrians, perhaps even Samaritans, and they would have had something very in common. They hated the Jews. 
And some scholars have concluded that for these soldiers to have had a supposed Jewish king at their mercy provided them with a tangible opportunity to display their prejudice and hatred and their savage cravings. Indeed, what we see here and also with the Jews at the end of this passage, in fact, throughout this entire text, is humanity at its very worst. Verse 27 says that they gathered the whole battalion before Jesus. That word for battalion refers to a Roman cohort, which was a military unit made up of around 600 soldiers. Now, Matthew may simply be telling us that it was just the members of the cohort who were present that day at the praetorium who assembled before Jesus, and not all 600 men, but either way, either way, whether it be all 600 soldiers or simply the ones available that day, there was a sizable group of armed men full of hate who stood before Jesus that morning. And they acted first with great indignity and shame. The Jews more so than other ethnicities, despised nakedness and believed that stripping someone naked was an offense too terrible to perform, even on their worst of enemies. These soldiers, they stripped Jesus of his clothes so that he stood before these violent men as totally vulnerable. Then they put a scarlet robe on him, which was probably one of the soldiers' capes, and it was made to parody a king's purple robe. This was all, of course, done to make him look ridiculous. As he stood before them totally naked with nothing covering him except for a soldier's cloak. Of course, it was all done as a joke to mock him. Next, they brutally disrespected his regal title. Verse 29 and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! These thorns were likely from the Acantha thorn plant, which grew in the thickets around the Judean countryside, and which had a strong prickly needles around its many leaves. It would have hurt considerably as they fashioned some of its leaves into a laurel wreath, the Greek would call it, or, or a crown, and then they cruelly pressed it down upon the Savior's head. They then put a reed into his right hand, and they proceeded to kneel before him in bitterly ironic mockery. Jesus was, and, and he is, the king of the Jews. In fact, though they did not understand, Jesus was and he is the king of heaven, the king of all glory. And yet they mocked him, naked, scarlet robed, head pierced by a thorny crown, and with the reed in his right hand like a sovereign king would hold, and they turned Jesus into a parody for their own fun. If you recall, Pilate had asked him back in verse 11, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus affirmed his question in a qualified way by saying, you have said so. But now, Pilate's soldiers turned this truth into a joke for their own amusement, altogether missing the reality of what this great king was actually doing for his beloved people in that moment. Then they went further 
and they performed more shocking indignity. Verse 30, they spit on him, they took the reed and struck him on the head, and when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put on his clothes, his own clothes on him, and led him away to crucify him. In every culture, I would imagine, it is a great offense to spit on someone. We don't do that. We quickly correct children when they do it. It symbolizes scorn and contempt, even hatred. This they did to Jesus. Then they grabbed the same reed which was in his right hand, and they struck him on the head. The word struck is in the Greek imperfect tense, which may mean that they hit him on the head repeatedly, perhaps each taking turns as they walked by. And only after they had finished mocking him did they strip him of that robe, put his own undoubtedly now ragged clothes back on him, and then led him away to crucify him. Remember, at any point, Jesus could have said, stop. He could have said, stop. And all of this would have been over. Imagine to know that you could stop all of the indignity and all of the suffering if you chose to, but to still press on. And he did so because he was driven forward by an astonishing, perfect love for both God and for me and you. Oh, fellow sinners, all of this Jesus endured for us. He didn't stop it because he knew exactly what he was doing. Scandalous event number two. The king was crucified for sinners. Now let's carefully process these verses one at a time. Verse 32. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. We don't know a great deal about this guy. It's possible that he became a believer and even a well-known member of the church, but we cannot say for sure. Cyrene was a city in North Africa, and Simon of Cyrene was likely a Jew who traveled to Jerusalem that particular week in order to worship God by participating in the Passover feast. So, wrong place, wrong time. And as the Romans led Jesus out, likely meaning outside of the city walls, because that's where they did their evil deed, the crossbeam that Jesus was required to carry all by himself to his death site was too heavy for him. And that should not be surprising to us, for last week we learned that the Romans had already scourged Jesus, a violent preparation for crucifixion that often killed men and certainly weakened them before they ever even arrived at their death site. Therefore, as a matter of mere unfortunate circumstance for this guy named Simon, but as a matter of divine providence for God, the Romans compelled this passerby from Cyrene to carry Christ's crossbeam for him to the site of his crucifixion. He wouldn't get there unless someone picked up the beam and took it for him. Verse 33. When they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, this was the location where Jesus would be killed for us. Golgotha is an Aramaic word, 
Aramaic being the common tongue of Israelites in that day. And it is translated as place of a skull. In the Latin Vulgate, this word is translated into the word calvaria, from which we derive our English word calvary. Jesus was crucified at Golgotha, the place of a skull, the place known to us as Calvary, for at Calvary, he would cover all of our sins. Verse 34. They offered him wine to drink, mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. Some have supposed that this wine mixed with gall was part of a Jewish tradition, wherein Jewish women would give sufferers such a drink in order to mitigate some of their pain. It is said that gall, a very bitter-tasting, poisonous substance, had the effect of doling's one's senses, or at least they thought, and would therefore take away some of the person's agony. Those who suppose that this is true also conclude that the reason why Jesus would not partake of this mixture of wine and gall was because he did not want any of his senses to be dulled and did not want any of his experiences to be mitigated at all, but he wanted to experience every bit of the suffering that was planned for him by his Father God because he needed to. And that might be the case. That might be the case. More probably, however, since the word in verse 34 says they, it refers to the Roman soldiers who were the ones who gave him this gall to drink. And this offering of wine and gall was meant to further torment him. As the bitterness of taste, instead of the quenching of a thirst, would have provided Jesus with just yet one more agony. Thirsty. You haven't drunk anything. Your body is utterly depleted. You think you've got a bit, and then you don't. Matthew, Matthew he, he clearly brings the words of the psalmist to mind here when he reports Psalm 69, verses 19 through 21, speak of Jesus. It says, you know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. There was no comfort extended to Jesus that day. Verse 35, and when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Every time I read that, I, I think the same thing, and I write it down in just about every Bible that I own. So matter-of-factly does Matthew record it. And when they had crucified him, though the details of Roman crucifixion were well understood in his day, and a description was therefore not necessary for his first readers, I do wonder if the sheer horror of it was simply too much for this disciple of Jesus who couldn't bring himself to put ink to parchment to actually describe it for people, what happened to him. Crucifixion was a punishment used by the Romans, the Greeks before them, but now pretty much only by the Romans, 
And it was particularly used for rebels and for violent criminals. And it was carried out publicly in front of all of the people so that others would be deterred from things like insurrection and murder, the reasons why someone would be crucified. Crucifixion was considered by everybody the crudest, most horrible, most shameful way to kill another human being. It involved the act of nailing or binding a person to a cross of wood or to a tree. The one we have up here and the one back there, they look pretty. They're nice in form. They look nice. It didn't look that way. It was a beam of wood. It was a log. It was ugly. In Christ's case, his hands were nailed to each side of his wooden cross beam, which was then nailed to a vertical beam, while his feet were also impaled together by another nail which secured them to the cross. All of his limbs secured by nails to wood. The sufferer, bleeding from both his scourging and his wounds from the nails, would then be forced to prop himself up again and again in order to take each breath by applying downward force on the nails in his hands and his feet. He had to hurt himself every time just to breathe a little more and stay alive. This excruciating torment, it went on for hours and sometimes, history tells us, it went on for days until the sufferer either had no energy left to prop himself up and therefore suffocated to death or he lost so much blood that he expired, or the soldiers got tired of it and broke their legs, and usually from shock, they expired immediately. After they had done this to Jesus, as he was saving his people from their sins, the Roman soldiers divided his garments among them by casting lots. A lot was a specially marked object, such as a pebble, or a piece of pottery, or a stick, and it was used to decide something. They would, they would cast the lot, kind of like you would cast dice. And depending upon which way it landed, a matter would then be decided. And in this way, these soldiers were going about it. And the way that they did this, they, they were essentially gambling, as they were allowing chance to decide who got what when it came to the remainder of Jesus' meager possessions. Who gets his sandal? Who gets his underwear? Such indignity. Uh, Jesus, the one deserving of all praise, had his own clothes gambled away from him. Again, this takes us back to the psalmist who wrote on behalf of Jesus these words. Psalm 22, verse 16. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Verse 36. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. 
The soldiers guarded the sufferers to make sure no one attempted to free them or to help them in any way. And then they did what they always did with the crucifixion. They wrote the name of the person as well as the charge that the criminal committed or supposedly committed, which they then nailed to the top of the cross so that everyone passing by could read why this person was being killed in such a horrible way. Over Jesus' head, they hung this charge. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Verse 38. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. Jesus was not the only man executed that day. Two other men were also crucified with him. The Greek word for robbers often meant insurrectionist, and that's likely what these men were guilty of here. Likely they had violently revolted against Rome like Barabbas had, and this was the cost. I find it interesting that back in chapter 20, two of Christ's own disciples, through means of their mom who came to Jesus, they requested to be at Jesus' side. Matthew 20, verse 21, she, their mother, said to him, See, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right and one at your left, in your kingdom. Chapter 20, one of the disciples' moms said, let my boys sit at your right and one at your left. But now, at Christ's side, are two criminals at his side who would both soon enter eternity. I find that amazing. When we go by Jesus' side, there's the place by his side. And though Matthew, for his own reasons, chose not to record it for us, one of those criminals next to Jesus actually, actually ended up experiencing the very salvation that was being purchased for him that day. One of them on a cross next to him. Luke 23, verse 42. And he, one of those men, said to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he, Jesus, said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. You insurrectionist or robber, you murderer, you violent man, if you believe that I'm the one who's the king and deserving of paradise, and you want to come there believing in me, then my friend, you're going to be there. Oh, people beloved by God, Jesus endured the cross to save transgressors like us. Perhaps you ask when you read this and you hear me recite these awful details, why did he have to die like that? Why like that? Why couldn't it have been something different? Why did it have to be that? The answer is, because our sin against a holy God deserves that kind of death. If you don't get the deep, terrible, awful reality of your own sin, then the cross of Jesus is going to seem like an overreaction. It's not an overreaction. He wasn't stoned, he wasn't speared, he wasn't suffocated by hands. Jesus was killed on a cross 
to demonstrate for us the depth of our wickedness against God. That the God of glory and grace who created us to be his people has been spurned by his people and every one of us deserves a horrifying cross as a result. That's how heinous our sin is to God. It's how heinous my sin is and it's yours too, my friend. Jesus did what we deserved. And though Christ's sacrifice on the cross is terrible, through his sacrifice on the cross, our sin can actually be forgiven. Our heinous sin that deserves that kind of response from God can actually be forgiven. Oh, I love what Paul says in Colossians 2, verse 14. He says, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. My ledger sheet has got sin nature written all over it. And then on that same ledger sheet, perhaps in a, in a different color, to help it distinguish it, not only does it say sin nature, but it says lustful man, arrogant man, prideful, impatient, angry, selfish. That's my ledger sheet. Jesus, his work, sets it aside. It's canceled because it is nailed to the cross where he pays for it as the king of glory. He paid my sin debt. And my friends, if you will receive him, he pays for yours. By becoming a curse for us on the cross, Christ secured our eternal redemption, which is a big word that means freedom, our spiritual freedom. Galatians 3, 13, Christ redeemed us. He freed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. I deserve the curse. The curse is on me. And yet Jesus, he became the curse for me by going to the tree for me. And he did it for you. Scandalous event number three. The king was ridiculed by the Jews. First, the common people jeered at him. Verse 39. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. Golgotha, though we're not certain about its precise location, would have been on a major road so that people passing by, whether on animals or on foot, would be forced to gaze at these suffering criminals and thus be starkly warned to never take part in any of their activities. Well, as the Israelites passed by, they wagged their heads at Jesus, an act of blame and shame. 
And some of them were reciting the same accusations which had been directed at Jesus by the religious leaders back in chapter 26, if you remember, when they mistakenly declared that Jesus planned to destroy the physical temple in Jerusalem and then rebuild it back up in three days. As we saw when we considered that passage a few weeks ago, those leaders were referring to Christ's statement in John 2, in which he was talking about the temple of his own body, which would be destroyed, for it was being destroyed in this very moment. And he would recover it after three days because he's going to be raised. And so these passers-by, they ridiculed him over this, failing to understand much of anything about him. They essentially declared, if you really are the Son of God, if you really have such power in yourself, then save yourself. Come down off your cross. Which reminds us, I think, of what Satan attempted back in chapter 4 while Jesus was in the wilderness. In verse 3 of that chapter, Satan said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. You hungry, Jesus? Those stones over there, Son of God, command in the loaves of bread and feed yourself. And then a few verses later, verse 6, he said, If you are the Son of God... Throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. He quotes Him truth of Scripture to say, Jesus, just jump off, you'll be saved. Jesus, save yourself. You're the Son of God, trying to get Jesus to do His bidding. This informs us, I think, that Satan, through the voices of these people, was still at work trying to get Jesus to do his will. If you think the temptation stopped after chapter 4, you're mistaken. Imagine, imagine being nailed to a tree, suffocating to death, and hearing, hey, if you're the son of God, just save yourself, and knowing all the while that you could. Well, next, the religious men taunted him. The religious men taunted him. Verse 41 so all the chief priests with the scribes and the elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. This was their hour. No doubt about it. This was their hour. This was their moment to get in their licks, to say all of the boastful public things that they had been wanting to say publicly for a very long time. These men were deeply jealous of Jesus, and now was their opportunity to deride him before the people, and they were very bold in their extremely wicked words. He saved others. Indeed, think of all the blind people who regained their sight. Think of the lame people who were made to walk. Think of the sick people who were made well. Think of the dead people who came back to life. Think of all the spiritual nourishment and comfort he provided through his teachings. Indeed, Jesus did save others, but now he can't save himself. He is the king of Israel. Yes, he is the Messiah sent to Israel by God, with all the authority and all the right to rule, but he can't even come down from a cross? 
Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe him, they say. You know what's true, my friends? You know what's absolutely true? Even if Jesus had come down from the cross, they would never have believed him or received him. He trusts in God. Notice verse 43. Let God deliver him now if he desires him, for he said, I am the Son of God. This is shocking boldness, isn't it? Certainly bordering on blasphemy. And even the robbers, at least before one of them was made wise by God in some way and looked to Jesus for salvation, they mocked him. In verse 44, the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. So now, for one last time, hear that this is exactly what God's word centuries prior had said. Psalm 22, verse 6. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. I mean, it's almost verbatim what the Jews say here. He trusts in God. Let God save him. Once again, he faced all of this for us. Jesus, if you're looking for something other than the gospel being proclaimed today, set it aside. Here it is. Jesus humbled himself and he was mocked for us. Philippians 2, verse 8. Speaking of Jesus, and he being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He humbled himself for you. He didn't have to. He loved you. And so he did that for you. He did all of this for you. All of this for the joy of forming a redeemed people. That's what Hebrews 12 says. Verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What I think that verse tells us, when it says, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, is that as he's suffering, as he's experiencing the physical pain and the mockery of the people and the abandonment of his father, what's in his mind is this joyful thought. Joe Earl, you, us, for the joy set before him. Wow! The king who came fulfilled the purpose of his coming. For he paid for his people with his own blood. We don't see him die officially this week. That will be next week when he will utter the most heart-wrenching words that have ever been declared. But what we have this week is Jesus up on a cross 
paying for your sins and my sins. The sin debt that we have, the ledger that is so covered in sins by us, is the ledger that he's up there paying for so it can be canceled out and discarded. That's what he's doing. And the scandalous cross of Jesus should compel us, should compel us at least today in two ways. First, as sinners, it should compel us to repent of our sins and believe in him. Oh, sinner, many of you have sat here for many weeks, maybe years, and you have never embraced Jesus. You've held to your legalism. You've held to your go-it-alone way. You thought you were fine, that God was good as long as you gave a little, altogether missing the point that you have nothing to offer and that your only hope is a Savior on a cross taking the place where you deserve. Let us repent of our sins, which is to acknowledge before God that you are a sinner, Acknowledge before God that your sin does deserve his righteous judgment against you. And then agree with God, agree with him, that your sin is rotten. To not, to not want that be the dominating force in your life anymore. To repent of it, to say, no, I, I hate this, I hate who I am in this, I don't want this. Lord, help me. That's repentance. You turn. Repent and believe. Repent and receive the Savior whose blood can wash away all of your sins and whose spirit comes after he changes your heart and he makes you a new person, a child of God, able to follow him and to serve him in ever-increasing amounts and one day to see him with your own eyes forever. Repent of your sins and believe in the Savior, I, I beg of you. Secondly, if we are Christians, this should compel us, I think, to sacrifice everything in the service of our King. I deserve nothing from Him other than His judgment. And what I get from Him is His grace. My life is His. Can you say that? Is that the heartbeat of your life? Can you say, my life is His. He bought me. He paid for me. I'm saved. My life is his. My ambitions, my dreams, my hopes, my desires, I put them up on the altar and I say, Lord, I sacrifice these to you. They're yours. I'm yours. I will follow you, Lord Jesus. Is that you, Christian? We talk a lot at Riverside about gospel conversations. I was asked this week to, to find that gospel conversation is to share with people what I just shared with you. That Jesus died on the cross and rose again to pay the price for sinners like you and your friend who you might share the gospel with. Gospel conversation is not merely to talk about God. It's not to talk about his other myriad blessings that he gives. Those, though those are wonderful things to talk about. A gospel conversation is to talk with someone about the death and resurrection of Jesus for their sins. Oh, if we are a church 
that is ready to sacrifice everything in the service of our crucified and resurrected King. Let us be people who pray with God to give us, seek out opportunities for, and have gospel conversations with a world that is dying in its sins. Their greatest need is not you to be their buddy, their chum, their kind co-worker, though those things are good. Their greatest need is for you to tell them about a crucified and resurrected Lord. Lord God, oh, thank you. What can we say, Lord? What can we say to you other than thank you? Shape us. I pray that, Lord, shape us. Save us, certainly, Lord. Save people in this room, Lord. Lord, I know there are people here who don't know Christ. Save them. Oh, Lord, let them know there's people here who love them. We don't have it all figured out. We're certainly not perfect, but Lord, please help them to know that even in our perfections, we love them. Save them, Lord, please. And Lord, help us to be shaped. Help this message be the foundation that again undergirds our whole lives. To the Father, we are lookers like Jesus. We begin to resemble him. We begin to be shaped into his image. Oh, do this, I pray, through this message of the cross. And I ask all of this in Jesus' name.